This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Jesus presents icons of sinners and the soul, and a guide to living life in the maze. Today, in three parables of divine mercy, including the big one, the prodigal son. I always think, I know about the prodigal son already, when I hear someone about to talk about the prodigal son. If that's what you're thinking, just wait. I always get more out of hearing the same thing again. And I have a couple of things that I think amount to a new take on the prodigal son, including one that I thank God for giving me. Because last year I was struck with two disquieting truths about the prodigal son. I can't think of a better word than disquieting. Because when I noticed it, it made me think, okay, yikes, I didn't see that there before. This is a great follow-up to the episode on hell, because the real answer to hell is divine mercy. But in the end, I think what we have here is a guide to living our relationships better, our family relationships, and our relationship with God. So let's get right to it. We're going to spend most of our time with the prodigal son, but I do want to give the same context that Luke chapter 15 gives. So I'll tell a bit of the other two stories, abbreviated. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The prodigal son and his brother. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. The younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who set him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and went. While he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So there it is, and Jesus talks to two different audiences simultaneously in a brilliant way. We're told that tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus, a beautiful image about how the people who most needed Jesus knew they could trust him and drew near. We also learn that the Pharisees complain that Jesus dares to be in the company of sinners, and Jesus tells these stories to them. So he's speaking to us, whichever group we are in at the moment, and we have probably been all three and will be again, the lost who want to be found and the found who want God to get lost. Jesus wants us to understand the heart the Father has for sinners. So he shares three icons of a sinner, three icons of our soul. Well, actually four icons of sinners and souls, because the prodigal son is about two sons who are both sinners. But the first icon of a sinner is the lost sheep. This is a picture of sin as thoughtless, uncaring folly. This is the image of the soul as embedded in a community. A sinner is a herding animal that has gotten separated from its herd. The strength of sheep is in numbers and numbers only. A group of sheep look daunting. A single sheep looks like easy pickings for a predator. I'm strong when I'm with my family or with good people in my life. When I go off by myself, I'm easy pickings for the devil. The good shepherd will do whatever it takes to get his sheep back to the flock, offering himself to the wolf instead, even as we saw. The second icon is the lost coin, the picture of sin as wasted potential. The coin is in a corner under the dresser where it does no one any good. This is us when our life choices make us feel like we are useless and squandered, unable to fulfill our destiny, unable to be spent, doing nothing, alone, in the dark. In the parable of the lost coin, Jesus says, What woman having ten coins and losing one would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors to celebrate. The details in this story suggest that this woman lives in poverty, and the loss of the coin is a significant blow to her? Though I have seen commentators who say it is another case of Jesus intentionally exaggerating the value of something to show God's high regard for us. 
In the same way, some commentary says no shepherd would leave 99 sheep to go after one. Maybe no woman would behave like this woman. On this theory, Jesus sees a higher value in us than others do. One of my favorite commentaries, though, says that this was basically an entire day's wage, so worth a thorough search, for sure. The same one says that each sheep would have been highly valued. I like to think that it can work both ways, because both things are true. We are valuable, but God values us more than we value ourselves. He's all in for each of us, as if we were the only one that mattered. So she searches her home for the coin. The kind of house his original listeners would have envisioned would most likely have been a narrow one-room structure with no windows. In order to light the house and search for the coin, she would have had to open the door, light a lantern, and search not just by sight, but by feel. Her solution is to sweep the house, hoping to feel the coin drag against the floor. It's a diligent search. She's doing what we always tell our kids to do. Look with your hands. The coin in this story would have been stamped with a royal image, and our souls, too, are stamped with the image of the King of heaven and earth. If our soul is like a coin, then it has great intrinsic value that makes it desirable in and of itself. God sees us that way. We are the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake, says the Catechism. Each of us has unique value in God's eyes, making us worth a great, arduous effort to recover us, so that we can spend our lives for the greater good. The woman in the story is the church, God's instrument on earth. When the church acts as she should, she lights a beacon in her teaching and reaches for us relentlessly, sweeping in anyone she can find in hopes of getting us back, because we mean everything to her. A church that no longer seeks the lost is no longer the church. The church accompanies us in order to bring us back, never to simply affirm us where we are when we are lost. But I get being an unspent coin in the dark. A lot of us don't want to be found. We don't want to be spent. But what we don't realize is that a coin is worthless unless it is put into circulation, unless it is offered for the needs of others. So I pray God finds the unspent coins. So you have the sheep, the sinner separated from the flock, and you have the unspent coin, the sinner who wastes her life. A third icon is the prodigal son, the purposeful sinner who cuts ties and flees far away from goodness. This is an icon of sin as individualism, the proud, autonomous, unconnected individual. We think of the prodigal son as a young person and think of his sin as a young person's sin. Fair enough. But lots and lots of middle-aged people become prodigals. It's a cliche, in fact, the midlife crisis. Think of it this way. The lost sheep is you when you stumble into evil you don't understand when you're young. The lost coin is when you blow off your responsibilities as an adult. The prodigal son is the next step when you work hard to build a self-centered life apart from God, often in middle age. But what this does is cuts you off from your own fundamental meaning. Of all the creatures on earth, only the human person is able to know and love her creator. We are made in the image of God who is love and realize our highest good when we love. When we love, we are doing something no other animal can do. We become like God. And when we sin, we do what no other animal can do. We subvert our own deepest identity. 
So those are the three images of sin and the soul that Jesus presents. Again, it's nothing like the caricature of hell we get of a mean God getting ticked and punishing naughty humanity. It's a loving God, longing for us despite our folly, our failure to fulfill our purpose, our determination to no longer be who we are meant to be. But let's focus in on the prodigal son, because there are two very clear meanings of the parable that I hadn't noticed all my life, even though they are plain and obvious. Maybe the truths were too painful to look directly at. But first, the typical way we read the parable is absolutely true and extremely important. The parable has been called the best short story ever told. In brief, rich phrases, it delivers deep insights into each of its three main characters and through them about our relationship with God. If you focus on the son who leaves, the story teaches about sin and conversion. The son takes his property and goes to a distant country. So we learn that to sin is to take the gifts God gives us and spend them on ourselves in a distant country. Lucifer's gifts were meant to be spent in service of God. But Lucifer, the light bearer, took them to himself and fled to a distant country. Well, God gave us gifts for us to give to our neighbors. But sin wants us to see what we can get from our neighbors and then focus on us. The son squandered his property on loose living and then starvation came upon the land. He was feeding the pigs, being forced to do what he considered unclean and longing to eat what they ate. But no one would feed him, so he came to himself. This tale tells us that to repent is to realize that we have fallen for a lie, an illusion, and that sin is making us miserable, and we have to stop. We come to ourselves. St. Augustine said of the prodigal son, quote, To be in a realm of lustful passion is the same as to be in a realm of darkness, and that is the same as to be far away from your face. He began to want and to suffer starvation because nothing is enough for prodigal enjoyment. End quote. The effort to find fulfillment apart from God and community is exhausting, and it leaves us starving and longing for scraps of filth. The prodigal's conversion happens not from love, but from an exhaustion at this wasted, fruitless life. He plans what he's going to do. He is going to confess. He plans to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's a great confession. He realizes that he has not just offended his dad, but he's offended God. He realizes that he is in no position to make demands. He has become humble and open. When he gets to his father, he finds that his dad is already out on the road looking for him as anxious to find him as the shepherd and the lady with the broom. He starts saying what he planned, but he doesn't finish because his dad falls on his neck, embraces him, and gives him a ring and a robe and shoes, reinstating him as his son, with the signs of belonging to the father. He says his son is like the sheep and coin. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. There's a father like our father. And there's a Lord like our Lord Jesus. There is no clear reason a father would have to give his son his inheritance early like this father did. The son has no right to his father's property while the father still lives. The father's abdication of his property to his son mirrors the way God treats us. Rather than force us to stay in a relationship with him, he lets us come and go at will. 
What he gave us, he truly gave us, and it's really ours, not pretend ours. We are free to use it for him or for his enemy. The decision is ours. This is a father who wants us around, but will let us go to a distant country if we don't want to stay around. The father who wants us with him in heaven, but won't force us into his company against our will. And the father here is not glad we've gone or that we are suffering. He doesn't say, you deserved it. You got into this mess. Serves you right for wasting what I gave you. He does not begrudge his mercy if we return either. Jesus says, while the son was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. I love how Bishop Barron points out that for an older person to run in this society was considered undignified. He's like a gleeful man who forgets himself in his overwhelming love. He is like that right now. He's everywhere, hovering behind the beauty, truth, and goodness we see all around us. He's there on every pathway, waiting for us to notice him and reach out to him and join him, ready to walk us home. Then, in an image of divine mercy, all was forgiven and forgotten. The prodigal son had disowned his father to go party alone. His father reinstates him to full sonship and then throws a party he can share with him. As Father Mike Schmitz puts it, we are relentlessly pursued and ridiculously celebrated by God. Okay, that's all well and good, but let's turn to the older brother. It's often said that this should be called the parable of the forgiving father or the parable of the two brothers. It's true. More than a third of the story is taken up by the reaction of the older brother. Because among the many things to think about in the story of the prodigal son, the love of the father, the sin of the son, the stages of forgiveness— One might be overlooked. Why did the prodigal son leave in the first place? I think in telling the story of the wild and crazy son who went away and the dutiful, bitter brother who stayed behind, Jesus might be hinting at one strong reason why the prodigal son left, because of his brother's example. Notice what happens when the older brother learns about the celebration his father is having. Immediately he became angry, says the gospel. He even refused to enter the house. His wonderful father came out and pleaded with him, but the son was having none of it. In real life, siblings help create the vision of our parents that we share. And in the big brother's words, you see the vision of the father that he had. Look, he said, all these years I served you. Actually, what he says amounts to slaved for you. In other words, he did his duties without love. He continues, not once did I disobey your orders which is fine until you think, wait, do you really want to obey my orders relationship in a family? He continues, then you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. A goat to feast on with his friends, notice, not with his dad. He concludes, but when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fatted calf. Okay, so we're not going to be diplomatic. He's going to stick his brother's sin in his father's face, and in his brother's face too, one assumes. But it works. If you have someone like the big brother in your life, you know this works. No matter what happens, this person recasts it as a dark drama with good guys and bad guys and themselves as victims. And all too often, we fall for it and pity the self-pitying person. The wonderful father suddenly does not seem so wonderful after all we might be inclined to think that he was, in fact, neglectful of his older son. But the father has a great answer. 
My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. So if the younger son was like Lucifer, taking the father's gifts and disappearing, the older son was like Lucifer too, taking his father's gifts and disapproving. The older brother didn't see everything around him as a gift. He looked at the generosity that surrounded him and assumed he was entitled to it. He saw all the generosity of his father and didn't wonder why it was so much. He wondered why it was so little. I have often in my life done that and have shared my bad attitude with others. God is filling our lives with every good thing, a billion dollars worth of color, light, song, everything, and our lower lip quivers with self-pity. Do we teach a spirit of bored entitlement with God's gifts, or do we teach awe and respect for them? But now we must celebrate and rejoice, says the Father, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. We hope the older brothers among us can still be found too. And since we've already sort of started to talk about it, I want to finally share my two disquieting truths about the parable of the prodigal son. The first one comes from the incredible news that God sees us as his family, his flesh and blood, his kith and kin. Baptism says we share in the life of the Trinity. This story shows what that looks like. A father who dotes on us, longs for us, runs to us, comes outside the house to talk to us. He treats us like the Son and the Holy Spirit, like persons of the Trinity. He pours himself out for us. But this is also the first disquieting truth I realized about this parable. The parables of Jesus are often tall tales about a servant who owes an impossible amount of money, about someone with a plank in his eye, or a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle. In this case, Jesus sets out to tell an ugly tale of a shocking and degrading act a terrible person might do, and the beautiful mercy of a God who can forgive even that. He wants to show a really, really bad sinner. So what heinous action does he show? He shows a guy who has the extreme wickedness to take what he can get and leave his family. But wait, how many of us did exactly that? How many men are no longer in their kids' lives? How many spouses are no longer in their spouses' lives? And how many of us took what we could get from our family of origin? Money for education, car, or house? And then effectively cut ourselves off from them by moving far away and only seeing them rarely? How many of us live in a place that is a distant country compared to where our father, mother, spouse, siblings, grandparents, or children live? And how many of us use our independence to spend money prodigally on self-centered pleasures, racking up debt? Or if we are with our family, how many of us treat them like the older brother treats his father? Always off on his own, out in the field, standing apart from the rest, pursuing his own desires. Are we like that on our phone, in our room? So on the literal level of the family, this parable convicts many of us but it hurts even more when you realize what this family stands for. But what is the father's house by analogy? St. Ambrose compares the prodigal son to those who, quotes, depart from the church. St. Augustine says that when the son returns, he has to confess to be, quotes, reestablished in the church. Then he feasts with his father, a kind of mass. St. John Chrysostom says the ring the son receives is a sign of how, quotes, Christ espouses his church. So the Father's house is the church. Why is this disquieting? 
because it puts many of us in the position of the older brother. In the text, the brothers didn't like their father and they didn't like each other much either. They didn't like the way their father did things, and they either avoided him altogether or obeyed him grudgingly. And of course, the angry, faithful brother disliked the carelessly unfaithful brother. And though he learned from his attitude, I'm sure the dislike was mutual. Isn't that what happens today? We don't like the way the church does things, and we don't like our brothers and sisters in the church much either. Maybe it's closed-minded traditionalists we don't like, or maybe it's the spineless modernists we can't stand. Maybe it's people who are too mean we don't like, too somber we don't like, or maybe it's people who are too nice, so nice they seem inclined to refuse to stand up for the truth. I actually feel exactly what the older brother felt. He said, look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. My version of that complaint sounds like this. All these years I have done my duty by the church, giving time, talent, and treasure. I didn't disobey your orders. I didn't miss mass or confession. I respect liturgical rules. I even obey humane vitae for Pete's sake. Look at all my kids. And what did I get in return? Much of the church bends over backwards for people who don't like the rules and won't follow them. So I'm the bad guy for wanting them kept. And every Catholic institution seems built for people who disobey humane vitae such that I can't afford the Friday night fish fry for my family, let alone Catholic schools. I'm just saying this is something someone might say. I do fight this kind of thought. I really do. I know a lot of people who think that way and keep the church at arm's length because of the thought. We avoid looking at the church as it is, eye to eye. We perish hop to fashion a Catholic experience that suits our tastes. Or we simply take what we can get, the sacraments, and skip everything else. We offer begrudging obedience, but not love. We avoid our Father, not by leaving, but by scowling. In other words, we are exactly like the older brother. We want God to act on our terms. We're not interested in changing to act on His. We treat God like He owes us favors for obedience. We're not willing to beg for crumbs at His table. We want God to serve our goals not vice versa. Which means we're like both the older brother and the prodigal son. We aren't that different. We all have a transactional relationship with the father. One brother cashed in all at once. The other brother extracted what he wanted over time, like we do with our sacraments. That's the relationship many of us have with the church. Instead, we should do the hard thing and participate like a loving family member in church life and be the ones who make it more vibrant and faithful. Thank God my wife does this and drags me along, so I have a little bit of credibility in talking about it. But if you ever looked with disdain at people in church, then you can read the first line in this piece this way. You and I began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to us, Jesus addressed this parable. This parable is addressed to all of us in Christ's family who can't stand the fact that sinners, the prodigals, the carelessly unfaithful, are welcomed by the church. And we doubt their repentance, and we even have evidence to support our doubt that they really repented. What Jesus wants to tell us is, God is love, and his true friends are love's ambassadors to each other. The Father has forgiven even us, even coming out of the house to meet us because we were too angry to go in. God is love, 
and he asks us to live in step with his love. But ultimately, all of these stories are about divine mercy. In the episode about hell, I promised to explain what St. Therese said when she thought she couldn't get into heaven. She said, quotes, I want to seek out a means of going to heaven by a little way, a way that is very straight, very short, and totally new, end quote. I also explained in the episode on the lilies of the field how on her way to Rome, she traveled through the Swiss Alps and seeing God's beauty, truth, and goodness and looking at the steep and narrow way, she saw her own weakness. And she said this, quote, When I compare myself to the saints, there is between them and me the same difference that exists between a mountain whose summit is lost in the clouds and the obscure grain of sand trampled underfoot by passersby. Instead of becoming discouraged, I said to myself, God cannot inspire unrealizable desires. I can then, in spite of my littleness, aspire to holiness. I want to seek out a means of going to heaven by a little way, a way that is very straight, very short, and totally new. End quote. And the new way she came up with imitated a new technology of her time, the amazing elevator. She said, quote, I want to find an elevator which would raise me to Jesus, for I am too small to climb the rough stairway of perfection. I searched then in the scriptures for some sign of this elevator, and I read these words, Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I had found what I was looking for. The elevator which will raise me to heaven is your arms, O Jesus. And for this, I had no need to grow up, but rather I had to remain little to become this more and more. End quote. Well, here we see the little way in action. Call it the little way of the lost sheep, because Jesus will pick you up and carry you. Or think of it as the little way of the coin under the dresser. Jesus is seeking you relentlessly because you're worth it. Or call it the little way of the prodigal son in his father's arms. And say, I may be lost, but I will not be defeated. I may be forgotten, but I am not undervalued. And I may be a failure, but I am not uncelebrated. The Pharisees define sinners by their past. Jesus is like the Father. He forgives and forgets your past. When you sinned, they lied about you. You were no longer just Joe or Jane. You were Joe who did this or Jane who did that. You were wolf fodder, a loss on the balance sheet, an embarrassment to your family wallowing with the pigs. Jesus saw you and loved you and longed for you. He defined you by his love, not his anger, and by his future, not your past. To him, you are Joe who I suffered for. You are Jane who I died for. He defines us not by how we failed in the sad, twisted story we wrote with our life, but how our life succeeds when we let him tell the story of our life as part of his own extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.